Thanks, Jeff. Well, again, my name is Tim, one of the pastors here. Uh, hopefully you heard it uh, as you kind of came through the doors this morning. Hopefully you've maybe even heard it from the people you were sitting around this morning. Hopefully you've heard it already from up front. But let me say again, welcome uh, to all of you, especially to those of you who are here for the first time. We really do uh, pray and, and trust you're ministered to, ministered to during this entire service. A couple things I want to say just by way of intro is I love Rob's South Forward and In song. That is great. He still hasn't yet come to ask me for kind of help musically, but one of these days he might. I was talking with Kevin, though, over here, and Kevin, like, obediently is, like, sitting in the perfect spot, like, the most, almost the most in, like, the most south, most forward. So we should get, like, a recliner sitting there. Um, that would help push people in the right direction. And then secondly, a lot of you know we do something here at Brookside called I Spy a Brooksider. We, re- we really try to help uh, everyone here appreciate all that you guys are doing to serve one another, encourage one another. Behind the scenes, in big ways and little ways, Brooksiders simply having a spiritual impact on other Brooksiders. So let me just read one of those we got, just as a glimpse of kind of some of the stuff we get kind of in that I Spy a Brooksider box. Um, someone writes, as I think back on my journey at Brookside, there was a person who made a huge difference in me getting involved. Five years ago, I was in a Tuesday night summer women's Bible study with a group of ladies. One of these ladies was Sarah Ellis. I was pretty new to Brookside Church, and to that point, hadn't done anything except go to the Sunday services, and I had just branched out to the Tuesday nights. Over the course of that summer study, Sarah challenged me to get outside of my comfort zone and to get plugged into another ministry here at Brookside that would continue to help serve my needs, get me engaged, and meet other people. I did. In my life changed forever. I'm not sure I would ever have stepped outside of my comfort zone had it not been for the gentle encouragement of Sarah Ellis. So way to go, Brookside. Again, just apart from what we do up front here, preaching, teaching, music, all good, important stuff. But thanks for taking the ministry of the body to one another. That's one of the things we want to continue to breathe as much life into as we can here as a church. So, um, so yeah, so those are kind of my two intro things. But this morning, like Jeff said, we're going to get back into our Ephesians series, which I'm excited to get back into after we took a few weeks off. Um, since we've taken a few weeks off, the, the best way probably to begin is to start with a sort of refresher course, looking back at where we've been in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. In these first three chapters, the Apostle Paul spends a whole lot of time shining this spotlight on everything Jesus Christ came to do for us and offer to us and accomplish on our behalf. If you're just joining us for the first time today, if this is your first time through this Ephesians series or, or, or starting to kind of open up this book, let me encourage slash challenge you to carve out some time in your schedules this next week to read through Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then I would even go a little bit further than that and say go online, brookside.net, go to our messages link and listen to some of the sermons that cover these chapters. These chapters are that foundational to the rest of the book, and and they're that important. Within these chapters, there are three verses that will give you a taste of these three chapters, of of this larger passage. Three verses we've returned to often in this series, and we've been encouraging you to memorize. So because we want to keep these in front of all of us, Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10 is going to pop up here uh, right behind me. You guys can see it. Let's read this 
together. So we'll do a little bit of participation stuff here this morning. But let's read through this again as a, as a chance just to appreciate the wealth that's in Ephesians 1 through 3. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, here's where he joined me. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then a few weeks ago, at the end of August, we transitioned out of chapters 1 to 3, and we looked at just the first two verses of chapter 4, where the practical section of this book, of this letter, really begins. At this pivot point, where chapter 4 kicks off, Paul is basically saying, because of everything I've said in chapters 1, 2, and 3, because of everything Christ has accomplished for you and offered to you, here's how you ought to live. Or to quote Ephesians 4.1 directly, Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And then still by way of review, in Ephesians 4.2, Paul gives us one snapshot of what living a life worthy of the gospel looks like. So if you say, what does that look like? Here's the command, live a life worthy of the gospel. How does that play out? In Ephesians 4.2, Paul answers that question. And he says, part of what living that life worthy of the gospel has got to involve are these things. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So on the one hand, we have the command. Live a life worthy of the gospel. And on the other hand, we have a snapshot of what obedience to that command involves. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Now, it would be nice, uh, I think, if there was some sort of automatic very easy, natural transition between hearing the commands of Scripture, for example, live a life worthy of the gospel, and obedience to those commands. It'd be nice if once we became Christians, there was some sort of cruise control button you could push, and you could kind of ease back on your attention a little bit, uh, relax kind of the, the gas pedal, and you'd get to your destination, whether you were really that engaged in things or not. But in my conversations with people each week, and from my own experience, and also from how I think Scripture presents the process of transformation God takes us on, let me tell you, there's not some easy, automatic, cruise control approach to growing in Christlikeness, to connecting hearing with obedience. The road between the command and ongoing obedience can be a long, winding one. And there are always off-ramps, that tempt us to take a different route that eventually won't take us in the direction we want to be headed. A ton of examples could be listed of these sorts of off-ramps. They distract us from growing in the right direction. But one example is that many of us can get sidetracked by, by taking the path of least resistance. So here's this great picture I found. If I ever find kind of this part, I'm taking the path of least resistance just to find out what it's like. But, but, but a lot of us kind of imagine kind of that road going forward as the long winding road of obedience. A lot of us say, okay, maybe that's the direction I need to be going, but this path of least resistance to my right because of convenience, because of comfort, or because of a hundred other things, I'm going to take that route instead. But scripture and experience doesn't let us do that. And what I love about the passage we're looking at today what I love about Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 32, 
is that it communicates an understanding of this struggle toward maturity. Paul doesn't paint a cruise control picture of the Christian life. He understands instead that if we're to get from from hearing the command, either in Ephesians 4, verse 1, or or any other command in Scripture, if we're going to get from there over to obedience, there's some work involved, folks. Specifically, in response to the work Christ has done for us and in us, and listen to this, because this is important, the maturing Christian life involves work. It involves a series of intentional and ongoing decisions. If we're going to kind of not go down the path of least resistance that we just saw up here, but take that long winding road of obedience every day for the rest of our lives. So let me read Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 32. And then we'll look at, at the series of four decisions. At these four decisions, Paul says, we need to take if we're going to be, be that sort of maturing, spiritually mature Christian. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes, So I tell you this in verse 17, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, and separated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. You were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And you were taught to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. From this passage, I think there are four decisions we need to get used to making as growing Christians, the decision to resist, renew, replace, and remember. Let's kind of track through those individually. The first decision we need to make if we're to grow as a Christian is the ongoing decision to resist. Specifically, we need to make a decision to resist returning to that old way of life that kept us from the things of God. Right out of the chute in verses 17, 18, and 19, Paul commands us to stop living a certain way. What he says to the Ephesians is that you must no longer live. And what he says, he says, don't live as the Gentiles do. Now, a quick fact about the church at Ephesus is that it was made up predominantly of ethnic Gentiles, simply meaning they weren't Jewish. Now, Paul isn't telling these people when he says, don't live as the Gentiles do. He's not telling them 
that when they're asked to fill in a circle about their race, to, to kind of fill in a different circle, instead he's pointing out that generally speaking, the Gentile way of life runs counter to the ways of God. He says, live differently than the majority culture you're surrounded by. If you look closely at these verses, you see the gentle, the, the Gentile way of life is characterized by certain things. If you look at these verses, you see it's characterized by hardness of heart, by ignorance about the ways of God, and by separation from God. It's characterized by unrestrained indulgence in sensuality, impurity, and greed. This is the way of life the Ephesians were immersed in before they came to know and follow Jesus. And Paul here tells them to no longer participate in those things around them that pulled them away from from their now commitment to Jesus Christ. So let's consider some application because I think there's there's a lot of overlap between the culture at Ephesus and our, our culture here in America in the 21st century. Except for maybe a small handful of you, all of us today are ethnically Gentile. We're not of Jewish heritage. What does it mean for us in our culture in the 21st century America to no longer live as the Gentiles do? Here's how I'd begin to answer that question. In the same way the Ephesian Christians were expected to jettison those parts of their majority culture that, that chafed against the ways of Christ, so too we as Christians, we need to be aware of those things in our own culture that, that pull us away from the life of God that he wants for us. By the things Paul warns about here in verses 17, 18, and 19. By the hardness of heart. By the ignorance about the things of God. And by the impurity in lifestyle. To get practical, I just encourage people, including myself, let's take a look at two broad areas of our life. What we're actively participating in and what we're allowing ourselves to be influenced by. Are the things you're actively participating in conducive to your life with Jesus, or do they run contrary to it? Imagine kind of the stereotypical Christian grandma was following you around, or, or as your grandma. You know, we all have that picture of the stereotypical Christian grandma. Imagine she was going to follow you around for a week. Would, as she follows you around to the things you actively participate in, would, would your grandma be proud in a good biblical way of the things you're participating in? Or to bring her shame to see what you're investing yourself actively in. Second, what about the things you're allowing to influence you? Friends, entertainment, and other pastimes. Are these things pulling you away from God and life he has for you? Or are they pushing you toward God? Now, listen, listen closely. Because I want to make sure everybody gets me on this point. What I'm, what I'm not saying here is that you have to leave all the friends you had before you started to follow Jesus. I am not saying that nor am i saying we need to stop our dish network subscriptions we need to burn our gift cards to the movie theater we got for christmas uh, or we have to quit our jobs if someone doesn't doesn't like the way we talk i'm not saying any of that so don't don't hear me say that a generation ago certain christian communities encouraged those sorts of behaviors and i think they allowed the kind of lifestyle pendulum to swing a little bit too far in a certain direction now, I love being culturally savvy. I think, I think it's good for Christians to be able to relate to the culture. But I wonder if we've gotten so afraid of swinging the pendulum in this direction that we've allowed the pendulum to swing a little bit too far in the other direction. 
And we've gotten so concerned about being hip and being able to speak the language of the culture that we've forgotten that in some ways, in some important ways, Christians are supposed to be distinct in our lifestyle. There's some guys I read a lot of. Tim Keller, um, drop his name as often as I can. Good guy. But he says Christians are to be a counterculture for the common good. We're, we're, we're absolutely to invest ourselves in the common good of our society, in our world, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. But we're supposed to be a counterculture at the same time, living in appropriately distinct ways from those around us, especially those things that pull us away from the life of God. You see, um, if, if we've never changed the channel because of what's on the TV, if we've never walked out of a movie because of, of where we knew the movie was going and where it was going to stay for the next hour and a half, if we've never loving, lovingly challenged a close friend to joke about different things or to stop pressuring us to do certain activities they know we don't want to do, if we've never done any of those things, then I think this passage asks us to ask ourselves, are we living, are we walking as the Gentiles walk? If we're to grow increasingly towards spiritual maturity, a first decision we've got to make and then make again and again and again throughout our lives is the decision to resist participating in and being influenced by those things that are going to pull us back into the life we were leading before we knew Christ. Um, and, and to make the decision instead, second point, to, to renew. We need to make the decision to renew. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. I think they'll pop up behind me again. Where Paul says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That statement is basically just a restatement of, hey, resist what, you're being, what, what you were involved with. Take off your old way of life. But then Paul kind of starts turning towards the positive command. And he says, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And this command to be made new makes perfect sense, especially when we look back at verses 17 and 18 and we, and we see how often mind language comes up in those verses. Look with me again at those verses, verses 17 and 18, where we see, I tell you this, Paul writes, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So after reading these verses, it's no wonder that in verse 23, if, that's, if that characterized us before we knew Jesus, our minds need renewal. Our minds need to be made new in, their, in, in the attitude of their minds, like it talks about here in, in Ephesians chapter 4. What this verse is telling us is that transformation and spiritual maturity, they're never the result of simply dressing up some external behaviors of our lives. It's never just a matter of stop doing this and start doing this. We need renewal at the deepest levels of our lives, here at the level of our minds. And we all know how this works. I don't have many daughters. I've got four boys. My dog is a boy. So the only woman in our house is, is my wife. But, uh, but imagine I had a daughter. And imagine that I was this jerk of a dad. Imagine that for years I told my daughter, 
you're not pretty, and you're never going to be pretty. Um, then imagine that rightfully so, some guys punched me in the mouth, confronted me, and said, Tim, you're being a jerk to your daughter. You need to change. Imagine that I kind of got my act together, said, okay, I can't, I can't do that anymore. And so kind of from that day on, I kind of bought my daughter the prettiest dresses and, and kind of dressed her up so externally she was stunning. She was beautiful. But imagine that, that even though I kind of put her in all the right fashion and all the right clothes, that I never went back and addressed all the years of verbal abuse that I'd heaped on her. Now, externally, at that point, my daughter might be beautiful, you know? I mean, I, I put her in the best clothes. But if I hadn't gone back to kind of renew her mind and say, I blew it, you really are beautiful, uh, she's a wreck, you know, if I never go back and renew her at that level. So, so here's the link between that, that imaginary story in Ephesians 4. We can dress up externals all we want. But if we don't do the, the work, if we don't dig to the next level and do the work of renewing our minds, then whatever changes we can make are going to be skin deep. They're going to be superficial. They're going to be short term. For those of you here who have honestly been desiring spiritual growth, your intentions are right. But, but maybe you've been focusing mostly on externals. Let me encourage you as, as a pastor who talks to people in the middle of this sort of thing each week probably. Do the work of digging to the level of your mind and being renewed, being reshaped at the level of your mind. I firmly believe in line with this that there's a certain primacy that the word of God plays in renewing and shaping our minds. That's why I encourage as many people as I can to get into this book, God's Word, often, on your own, individually. Start reading in the book of Psalms or the Gospel of Mark, or start reading in Ephesians, what we're preaching through right now. But start reading it. That's why we preach from God's Word each week, because I think there's, there's, a, there's a renewing that happens as we just sit under the, the, the Word of God, preached and spoken. The, next week, we'll get to this passage in Ephesians 5, where, where Paul even says, there's this washing that happens from the renewal of the Word, you know? Um, so, so there's that level of things that we just need to get into God's word. But I firmly believe as well, there are other things we can be doing to allow our minds to be renewed. Surround yourself with the right people, people who love you enough to put up with you and people who love you enough to know when to confront you, tell you the truth, to punch, not really punch you in the mouth. Don't hear me. But, but to tell you when you're being a jerk, you need to talk to your daughter a different way. You know, I mean, that sort of thing. And this is where life groups are so key. Consider gospel-centered Christian counseling. If there are kind of rewirings that are needed in your mind at deeper levels of habit or history. But whatever the case, be renewed in the attitude of your minds. Third decision as we pursue Christian maturity is the ongoing decision to replace Verses 22 and 24, again, we saw resist or take off the old man, renew your minds. And then finally, Paul does say, put on the new man in true righteousness and holiness. So if we saw in the previous point, if we saw it kind of in the, in the point to renew our minds, that externals aren't the only thing required for maturity, here we also see that eventually the work of God in us, rewiring our minds, reshaping our allegiances, should work itself out into practical obedience that other people can notice about you and about us. 
in these verses, Paul uses the language of getting dressed, putting off, putting on, to communicate this replacement. Yesterday, I had the awesome opportunity to go to the Husker game. Nate Williams, one of the Brooksiders, had some extra tickets, so invited me and a few others along. So we, we went down to Memorial Stadium, go Big Red. Um, and uh, the kind of Saturday, the Memorial Stadium experience is one of those places where, um, where everyone is intentional about the clothes they put on, you know? Uh, there's about 80-some thousand people in red. Uh, there's 34 people in purple. And John Alford was there. John Alford was in brown because John Alford wears brown everywhere. Um, you see, people dress consistently with their identity in that stadium. Husker fans, you knew. Red, white, or black. Husky fans, you could point them out. Purple, you know. Um, and because I'm a Husker fan, yesterday morning when I woke up, I didn't need Carrie, my wife, to lay out my clothes for me that day. You know, instead, I knew I'm wearing my Husker hoodie, my kind of red underneath, going to paint the big red N on my chest, which, just joking, nobody saw it, don't worry. Um, but, but, but you know what you're going to wear when you go to the Memorial Stadium. You dress in line with your identity. And Brooksiders, if you're a follower of Jesus, your primary identity your most fundamental identity is Christian. Are you dressing in line with, with that fundamental identity? And then what's so helpful, because this is where God's word gets practical, is in verses 25 through 32, Paul helps us know, here's the colors you need to be putting on. Here's, here's the behaviors you need to be putting on if you're going to dress in line with your identity as a Christian. So there's going to be a, some slides that pop up behind me. Let's kind of walk through this, because what, what Paul does is he kind of draws a line on the middle of the paper, so to speak. And he says, on one side of the column, there's behaviors we need to take off if we're going to be walking consistently with our identity as Christians. And then on the right side of the column, he says, here's kind of the positive Christ-shaped counterpoint that you should be putting on instead of that thing you had been doing. So let's walk through verses 25 through 32, see how he does this. The first thing we need to do is you see that we need to, we need to replace lying with speaking truth in verse 25. Just put away falsehood, speak truth. And then he says, it's cool, it's not listed up here on the columns, but, but then Paul gives reasons for why he says what he does too, because, he's, because you're all members of one body. Why would you lie to one another when you're all members of one body? The second thing Paul does, he says, Take off, replace acting out in anger with reconciliation and peace. Reason? So you don't give the devil a foothold into your life. Uh, a million implications there. That would be a whole other sermon. But reason enough not to be angry, to persist in that, don't give the devil a foothold in your life. You say, I don't see reconciliation and peace in that passage. Where does that come from? Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. If we're supposed to deal with our anger before bedtime, a lot of times that means I need to pursue, initiate reconciliation and peace with those involved in what I'm angry about. So, so take off, put on. Third thing, we replace stealing with generous sharing. We replace unwholesome speech with words that encourage and build up. And then last, what we'll mention is we replace bitterness, rage, anger, brawling slander and some other things with kindness compassion and forgiveness 
Now, Brookside, let's leave that up for one more second. Uh, look at those columns and consider your life in the last four, five, six, seven days. If your kid or your wife or your husband was following you around, which of those categories would they put you in? That's convicting because there's all sorts of ways. This passage reminds me I am in continual need of growth in my own life. But Brooksiders, we need to be putting off these old things that are absolutely out of line with our identity and putting on these new things that are the evidences of God's grace working itself out in us. Now, I don't think these verses in Ephesians 4 are the exhaustive exhaustive list of what we need to take off and put on. In addition to all of these things we just mentioned here, I think there are other signature sins that tempt us individually. So, so some homework I would encourage you towards is to say, what things in my life is God calling me to put off? And then what is the Christ-shaped positive counterpart to that that I need to put on, that I need to add to walk in line with my identity? The fourth decision we need to make as we pursue living a life worthy of the gospel is the ongoing decision to remember. And the only thing I want to mention here is something I've alluded to a few times already this morning, but I want to make absolutely clear we are all sure on. We can't separate what we've, what we've looked at in Ephesians 4. With all the effort that's involved in that, we can't separate it from what we've already seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Paul absolutely does not have in mind here us doing any of the things we've talked about as some sort of white-knuckled, will-powered way to earn God's favor or to use some great biblical language to, to achieve our own justification. We need to remember what Paul has already written in Ephesians so far. The verse we looked at earlier today, we are saved by God's grace, not by works. And neither are we left alone just to willpower, good intentions, and a little dose of hope, hoping that maybe one day we'll be changed in line with these things. We need to remember what Paul has already written in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, that just as God calls us to these things, God is the one who enables us to do these things. Ephesians, I think it's in chapter 2, somewhere in the first three chapters, read them all, they're worth it. Um, we see that, that God's power is for us. God's glorious riches are for our strengthening. They provide hope. The, the authentic, inside-out life change really is possible. So if you do everything else I talked about this morning, but if you fail to remember why you're doing it, the result is going to be some sort of wicked, lopsided obedience that's skin deep and is going to end up properly in legalism or something, you know. But, but, but we need to remember all that Christ has done for us. That is the motivation for every other decision we make that we've, that we've talked about this morning. Before we go, I want to return to the big idea that we started this morning with. The Christian life isn't passive, it's not automatic, but instead, our renewed lifestyle, based on everything Jesus has done for us, it involves some work. There are some in, intentional decisions that we need to make and follow through on in our lives. So as we walk out of here to the rest of our day, I want to coach us in the direction of some responses to what we just heard from God's word. You may have other things that have jumped out at you from this passage 
don't let me keep you from marinating in any of those. But others of us, myself included, we, we sometimes need to have kind of our kind of prim- pumps primed a little bit to know, okay, how, how should I respond to what I just heard? So if that's you, here are some ideas. If you're not a Christ follower and you're, and you're listening in this morning, what we've been talking about this morning probably sounds foreign to you 100%. And it sounds like a whole lot of work you probably aren't interested in. But let me suggest to you, based on the authority of God's word, that God created us and God designed us to live a certain way. When we go our own way without factoring God in, we chafe against God's design for us. And I think living in line with Ephesians 4, verse 17 to 32, is one of those ways we can get back into the groove God has carved out for us as humans, the way we were designed to live as people on this earth. It's difficult, yes, but I think it's right. It's the way we were designed. Some of you are Christ followers who are very aware of the fact that you have a lot of growth to do. There's this gap between where you want to be and where you feel like you're at now. Maybe there's this sin that discourages you that you just cannot get rid of. Or maybe you just compare yourself to the person to the right or to to the left of you, in front of you or behind you, and you say, I can never be like her or like him. And there's this discouragement that sets in. I wish I could sit down with you individually so we could talk about this that way. But since that's probably not going to happen today, let me simply remind you instead that growing in Christ-likeness, yeah, it takes work. We talked about that this morning. But it takes patience. We are all in process. I, I pray that by God's grace, I will be further along in Christ-likeness 10 years from now than I am today. My wife prays that twice as much as I do, you know, for me, you know. Um, be patient with yourself and get to work. Um, but don't only hear me say, if this is you, don't only hear me say, keep giving up the old college try. Even more than that, keep remembering, I believe that everything that should motivate our desire for these decisions, our effort for these decisions, is based off this gratitude, this response to what Christ has already done for us on the cross. Yeah, amen, yeah. And finally, some of you here today, your, your pictures of Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. You've gotten in the groove of putting off and putting on, having your mind renewed, everything we've talked about. But even you, I want to say, even you can't write this passage off. You can't put the check mark by it and kind of flip over that page in your Bible every time you're reading through Ephesians. We always need to be coming back to these verses. First, we need to do this because we can never throttle back. We can never throttle back from obedience in these areas. We all know people who started strong and then tapered off a little bit and then took a nosedive in their faith. These decisions we talked about today, they're ongoing decisions. We never stop making them. Recommit yourself today to continual obedience in these areas. And then second, I think our world needs a picture of Christianity uh, of this sort, of Christians who are actually doing it. We need the examples that provide hope, that we, can, that we can live for Jesus and grow in him. Not in some proud way that points the finger in ourselves and says, look at how great I am, but in a sort of humble way that says, this is entirely of God. Here's who I was, here's who I am, and here's the transformation that God is working out in me. We need those types of examples. All of us do. So, so keep 
pursuing the, these things. So resist, renew, replace, and remember. May God give us the strength to do it. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that challenges our tendency towards comfort and convenience. Father, we thank you for your word which shows us what, what life is supposed to look like and be lived as, as humans. So God, now because of everything your son Jesus Christ has done for us, enable us to walk in a way that honors you, that, that's consistent, that help us live a life worthy of the gospel. Jesus, we need you for that. Jesus, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, let's stand and respond to uh, God's word. And whichever, um, whichever person you are that Tim just described, one of those three people, would you just take this time?